Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. This one, we're doing a true two-parter. I'm going to be talking to two different people this week, uh, going to get into some NWSL action, going to get into some international stuff, you know, how that even kind of relates to NWSL action. But we had a week full of activity, and there's still more to come. I feel like I need to timestamp this. Um, we are recording this at exactly 1126 Eastern on Monday. There's probably going to be more news after we recorded, but we have plenty of news to talk about right now. I am joined by Equalizer Editor-in-Chief Jeff Kasuf. How's it going, Jeff? Hey, Claire. Happy to uh, be on. Happy Monday. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we got a lot to discuss. I mean, to do a breakdown, there's so much information here. I'm going to do a quick rundown of, of some of the activity um, and hopefully we will kind of talk through all of the, the relevant information. Um, so trades, things have kind of exploded, which we knew was going to happen, not only because we had California expansion, but also I think that you go through this year that these teams have gone through, you're going to have some players asked to leave, um, just cause they can't, they, they need a fresh start. Right. Um, so Started off with a very big move. North Carolina Courage send Sam Mewis to the Kansas City Current um, in return for Kiki Pickett and the third pick in the upcoming draft. Um, in a separate transaction, North Carolina received the discovery rights to Malia Berkeley, who is currently playing for Bordeaux in exchange for Kansas City's. Oh, wait, sorry, for, uh, for sorry, Kansas City got North Carolina. See them getting confused already. Kansas city got North Carolina's natural first round draft pick for those rights. Um, we saw some plays for expansion protection. The Chicago red stars sent Sarah Gordon and Julie Ertz to angel city. And they sent Katie Johnson, Mackenzie Doniak and Kelsey Turnbow, who was one of their draft picks last year to San Diego. They've also sent Nikki Stanton to all rain for a third round draft pick. Um, most of those were player requests as, as stated in the press release there, um, quite a bit of movement in and out of Gotham Gotham sent Kaylin Sheridan to San Diego in return for $130,000 in allocation money. There is reporting, and this is something that could be announced literally the moment we finish recording this, but there's been reporting that Gotham is replacing Sheridan with Ashlyn Harris and bringing Ali Krieger up from Orlando. We'll see if that gets announced soon. I've heard that it is done. Um, the Washington Spirit sent Tegan McGrady to San Diego in turn for expansion protection. And they also have just made a deal to secure, I think this is right, protection of just their allocated players from Angel City. Um, so they have partial, partial <laughs> uh, expansion protection. They are like now have a third of expansion yeah, to have three quarters covered. Just right, exactly. Yeah, they're mostly they've made it most of the way there. Um, and then Orlando Pride did send Jody Taylor to San Diego. Um, they didn't actually tell us exactly what they got back for that. There's conditional um, either draft picks or or allocation money. Um, and then this morning, Gotham also sent Brianna Pinto down to North Carolina um, for quite a bit of allocation money. So maybe first question for you, Jeff, is we all kind of saw this coming, right? Did you think it was going to be quite this expansive? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think we did see a lot of it coming. Um, you know, some of these things, I think even as of this recording, as you said, are, are have been out there a little bit and, and haven't been confirmed. You know, I, I think the extent to which it looks like by the time we get to the expansion draft, half of what 
over half of what would have been picks will be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, as I've, I've said and written, I, I think that begs the question as to the value of the actual expansion draft, if over half of the league can trade out of it. So, you know, I think it makes sense from the idea that you want to control, uh, if you're an existing team, you want to control who exactly you're losing. And you've obviously worked to, to build those pieces. And honestly, that's my biggest beef with the expansion draft to begin with is you have these teams that work for years and then a new team comes along and they say, let's blow up your plan. And you can't do a heck of a lot about it other than try to maneuver like this. So I think it's predictable in that sense. Um, The extent to which it's happened, you're right, I think is probably um, maybe a little bit more so even than I thought. And I would say the valuations have been all over the board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've learned with um, allocation money that n- I don't think we've found a consistent valuation of it from any one team. That there's payments um, for a, an all-world type of U.S. player that are similar to, um, you know, a, a rookie basically that right. that is unproven to a degree, even if a lot of potential. So, you know, I, I think that's all over the board, and and um, you know, I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see the evolution of this going forward, because I do think we've gotten to a point where an expansion draft is, um, if not obsolete, needs some revisiting. Yeah, agreed. And well, and I think that in a positive way, um, the fact that things are playing out the way that they are means that teams like know that, right? Or even the expansion teams know that. And I think the expansion teams, these California expansion teams also understand that there's a certain amount of goodwill that goes into trading for a player that might be welcome to that move rather than going through the expansion process. And same with the existing teams, understanding that not putting players through the expansion draft process is productive for them in terms of player goodwill. Um, I think that has also been a shade of the value we've seen coming back. I think some teams are really trying to get value back and some teams are really maybe just trying to get players in places where they want to be, you know, um, and, and each team is on their own trajectory with that. Uh, I think the other thing that I, I do think is, is good is sort of what I was already alluding to, which is that I think a lot of players want to play for these California clubs, right? Like there mm-hmm. might be expansion drafts in the past or even in the future where players are really happy and kind of shocked when they get left unprotected or when they get picked up or traded, but a lot of these were player requests, right? So from your perspective, Jeff, do you think it is, you know, the lure of, of California, of these kind of flashier clubs, fresh starts? What do you Mm -hmm. think it is like, maybe a good example is someone like Kalen Sheridan. What do you think it is that brings a player like that to say, Hey, I I need a new opportunity. I I need to go to San Diego. Well, I think there's always the other end of it. Right. And I think that um, you know, what, what's going on in the current environment or what happened or, or whatever that might be. And I think, you know, we've seen a little bit with Chicago, certainly understandable as to why that could be the case. Um, you know, and and in any personal situation, I think that that's, you know, a a possible, um, element to it, but I do think California, you know, is appealing as a place obviously, but also if you look at the breakdown of, of players that enter the league, certainly through the draft and, and the college system, there's a significant amount of them that come from California roots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is a factor. I mean, you look at that with even some of these big, the biggest sort of anchor signings, Kristen Press, Abby Dahlkemper, Mm -hmm. those are players who 
grew up in, went to, you know, went to college in California, have roots there. Um, so I think that's part of it. I do think we're still in a league where there are um, the standards are across the board. And those are things we don't even see that are behind the scenes and, you know, players look and they see, okay, you know, maybe a, a bright new shiny team an object um, maybe there's a, a better situation somewhere, which even, you know, last year, maybe we didn't see this reaction, but Louisville in terms of facilities and whatnot, you know, that's also the case. Yeah. So yeah. there are players who might be in situations and teams where they're saying, you know what, this is not, you know, especially an older player, right? I, I mean, this is not what I worked for 10 years to be training mm -hmm. in or right. treated like. And, and so I think that's, that's part of the appeal. And I think we're just, you know, the year that has been in NWSL off the field is, is such that um, I think there's probably, we have to acknowledge a lot more going on than we can ever realize right. um, on that personal level. And even at a team level that would drive people to say, I just need to hit reset. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a time and a place, right. And the place is California and the time is, is right now. And so that has led to, certainly the most off-season activity I think we've ever seen in the NWSL. Um, yeah, so let's get into it a little bit. Let's get into some of the nitty-gritty with some of these teams. Um, let's talk Chicago. So what Chicago did in terms of sending players out and what they got back is one of the more uneven moves, right? They didn't get allocation money. They didn't get picks. This was just a play for expansion, and arguably they gave up more than they would if they kind of played hardball and went through the expansion process. Um, your take on it, Jeff, is this a team that is trying to do some, some reputational help by considering player wishes? Is this a team that at this point is struggling so much with player relationships that they don't really have a choice? What, what, what's your take on this, Jeff? I think both of those are possible. Yeah. I would say I'd be curious if if you strongly disagree with this or not. I think that that a trade to LA from a pure soccer perspective, even keeping in mind all of the external factors of mm -hmm. whether Julie Ertz or Sarah Gordon wanted to continue playing in the in Chicago or not, I think from a soccer perspective was indefensible right. for Chicago. Right. Um, you look at comparative values that were given up look at the Louisville trade for Kristen press and they got back the allocation money, the, the basically uh, top two pick and protection. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sarah Gordon is not a throw into a trade player, right? No, I mean, right. she, she's someone who, I don't know what the exact value would, would be, but you could build a package of a trade around rather mm -hmm. than add in and Chicago traded away a yes. Julie Ertz missed most of the season, you know, different, different factors, but a top player in the league when healthy, an anchor of a franchise type player, and then throw in a Sarah Gordon on top of it for simply protection. Um, you know, wh why they did that, why they didn't want to get the, the guessing game of here's one of our five allocated players that you're going to pick and we can only protect one. Absolutely. But the valuation, absolutely terrible for me. Right. Well, I'll even flip it. What if the trade was Sarah Gordon and they added Julie Ertz in either way, <laughs> you know, it, either way you look at it. Um, and, and that's where, again, you look at the outside circumstances, right? Um, I mean, this is just sort of picking up the pieces of what you see from the outside, right? Like Julie Ertz did not return after the Olympics. Um, she wasn't even quoted in the release. Um, I just think that 
if you've gotten to the point where your relationship with a player like that has eroded so completely that Julie Ertz is your add-on player because her value to you is, is gone because she's never playing for you again. Um, Mm. that's a rough place to be. Right. Uh, and I don't know, maybe where I'm at with it is now, I don't know what assets Chicago has to rebuild. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't have a first round draft pick in the upcoming draft. They, I don't know exactly what their allocation money situation is. I don't know how much of that has been diverted to player wages from what they've built up in the past. They don't have a coach. They don't have a general manager. Um, and it seems like whatever reluctance they had to move on from Rory Dames has set this all up so that there is no moving on at this moment. They're still stuck in the aftermath of what this Mm -hmm. has done to the reputation of the team. So if there's any team that I'm probably the most worried about here, I do think it's them. Right. And I I think that leverage too, is probably a question that comes up in this. And I've I've seen people say, well, you know, what leverage does Chicago have if these players want to leave and everybody in the league knew that and, and, you know, fine. But again, let's compare the only thing different here is timing uh, by a few months. Um, You know, what leverage did Louisville have? I mean, (laughs) Kristen press and, and Tobin Heath, very much, you know, maybe didn't directly, I'd have to look at exact quotes, but very clear that they were never playing there. Right. And, right. and that LA was a, an attractive destination and, you know, still in my opinion, pulled off a much better trade right. than Chicago did. So timing, the only difference there, um, you know, I, I think the San Diego part of the trade that Chicago made for the other side of protection, I think was, um, okay enough. I mean, Kelsey Turnbow is probably the one there where you look right. and say, you know, to your point about how do you rebuild, that's one where you say, mm, you know, that was part of the future. Right. You know, the other players, maybe, maybe you can move on from in some way, but right. um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, it's a rough off season so far, obviously in many ways for Chicago. Yeah. Um, so looking at some of the other teams here, uh, I think Gotham is another one uh, that is, I think people raising some eyebrows perhaps, right? Um, Gotham is a team that has a new GM, an interim GM still, right? Uh, A new head coach. They're a team that did quite well, if you think about the context of the rebuild post-Sky Blue last year. Coming back to earth maybe a little bit, maybe figuring out what the long-term solution for this team is. Um, what's your take on, on what Gotham is doing? And and let's say this with the assumption, um, and, and if we need to cut this, we can, but I don't think we're going to have to, let's say this with the assumption that they are bringing in Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger, Jeff, um, Mm -hmm. what do you, what do you, uh, what do you make of, of what Gotham's done so far? Yeah, I'm having trouble understanding it. Um, and, and, you know, uh, again, maybe this is an argument for, uh, us having a more complete picture three days after the trade deadline, but, um, with what we know, you know, Kaylin Sheridan, you're not going to upgrade from her, right? I mean, you've right. got Sheridan and Aubrey Bledsoe and, and Casey Murphy, maybe, you know, you're talking about one of these as an argument for best goalkeeper in the league. So you're not going to upgrade. Ashton Harris, not a massive downgrade, but certainly you look at where they are in each point of their career and, and you say, okay, maybe one is for the future. You know, we don't know how long per se that, that Harris will continue playing. So um, I have a lot of trouble figuring out what Gotham is doing with trading away, you know, a, a future midfielder, a future potential star in Pinto, mm-hmm. a, a clear current all league, all world type of, of goalkeeper in Sheridan. 
you know, again, we saw the line in passing in a press release that she, she expressed an opportunity, a need for a new opportunity, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, I see a lot of youth going out and then you bring in, you know, again, maybe we're missing a part of this deal, but right. Gotham's defensive line is not what needed improvement by any means. Right. So you've added Ali Krieger, who's a good defender, but did you need a new defender? Did you need a new defender who, I mean, already with the unit that they have, it's not the youngest unit. Right. And, and then you add Ashlyn Harris. So, you know, I think good moves for those players, certainly in, in multiple ways for, for careers and post careers probably, but mm -hmm. um, for the team, I don't know necessarily how this sets you up for years to come in a way that it, you know, the, the players going didn't or did. Right. And it's also to me, here's my thought on it is that it's not a step forward, which is what Gotham needs, right? They, they make it to the postseason, which is great. They, they fall in their quarterfinal, that team with the pieces that they do have, you think, great, let's see what in the off season they can do to take a step forward. And I think what we're seeing is a team that's going to look different, but I'm not entirely sure that they've improved. Um, obviously a long way to go. Right. But, um, we're, <laughs> we're in the stage where we're seeing um, the players leaving more than we're seeing the players coming in, which is natural at this point of the year, but um, mm -hmm. just seems like some lateral moves for them. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, you know, one more team to highlight here, because I think what they're doing is actually interesting is North Carolina. So North Carolina announces that they're going with Sean Nahas. He's, he's their new head coach. Um, he's the one who, who took up the mantle at the end of last season, kind of steadied the ship. Players feel really good about their relationship with him. He's the guy going forward. They move Sam Mewis, which Mewis kind of declined to say whether it was a requested trade. It seems like she really just wants to maintain that relationship. She has a lot of good memories with, with North Carolina, has a lot of love, for, she said, specifically for the teammates that are still there. Um, so moving Sam Mewis, which gets them down to one allocated player, right? Lynn Williams is their only allocated player, meaning that they're set up to do okay in an expansion draft process. They bring in, they've now brought in Kiki Pickett and Brianna Pinto, who are two young, exciting uh, players that probably just need a little bit of coaching, right? To get up to speed to the professional level. This seems to me like a team that's doing this pretty smart, right? So they are a team that had off the field issues, big ones. They probably had some players who, who said, hey, I can't look at these four walls anymore, right? but they've moved past it. They've, they've hired an, and they've hired a coach that players feel really good about and they're making moves to do a bit of a slow rebuild where they're not getting rid of all of their veterans, but they're making some replacements with some very exciting young players. So I wonder, do you feel similarly, Jeff, do you feel like North Carolina's on the right track here? I don't know. I don't know if I could outrightly agree with that. Just, yeah. just from the incomplete picture. I mean, sure. I think, a year ago, I thought that they were in rebuild mode and they sort of, um, until a point, I, I think that they sort of shook that off. I mean, I think at mid, mid, um, early July, mid table or mid season, they were, they looked like they were flying again to a degree. Uh, we know how, you know, the fall went and, and mostly off the field that was, um, it's hard to say. I mean, I used the term rebuild, um, with Sean Nahas and his introductory press conference last week and um he said he didn't really believe in that word and I'm, I'm paraphrasing but you know the absence of crystal dunn was felt 
immediately. Mm-hmm. Then Sam Mewis was missing for that whole back half of the season. And there was this gaping hole in the midfield that, you know, Dabinia alone could not fill. And I think players like Havana Salon, who, who ended up getting hurt, Meredith Speck did, did fairly well, but you're talking about replacing Sam Mewis and Crystal Dunn. Right. And, and so I think that, I think they're a team of like, we really need a lot more information because not only the personnel change that, that is drastic. And again, you can really only downgrade from a Sam Mewis and Crystal Dunn combination. Um, but it's also a, like, what is this team's identity? And that, as you alluded to, off the field is probably the most pressing and, and serious question that, you know, they've been working through. And I think that's part of keeping Nehas on full time at the request of the players and, and figuring that out, but also on the field, you know, I've, I've sort of been poking at, at them for months now of like, does this box midfield that was once the, the creme de la creme of the league have a future? And I don't right. think it can with the personnel that they're, they're trying to figure out. So then you're talking about a whole systemic, on-field overhaul Mm -hmm. of what does this team look like so I don't know I mean I think this is a team that's going to have a lot of question marks that's going to have some some growing pains in the season next year and we'll see what they do as far as international signings and any other acquisitions going forward yeah no I mean that makes sense right the the pieces are not all in place um I guess maybe what my thought is you know certainly they've let over the course of two years right big cornerstones of the club move on in, in Dahl Kemper, Dunn Mm -hmm. and Mewis, but they are at least getting some players in already, I guess is maybe where I'm at with it, which means that I think that they're at least in, in the stage where they've got at least an eye on what they can become next, Mm -hmm. even if it's not quite what it was. Right. Um, Right. Um, Yeah. So Jeff, I mean, I, I know that I know that you have have some thoughts about this, and I want to kick it over to you. Um, we're trying to make yeah. some content about this, right? And the expansion draft is in, oh gosh, like ten days, eleven days, twelve days. Yeah. Um, the the trade deadline was one p.m. Eastern on one p.m. Eastern. Yeah. One p.m. Eastern Friday. on Friday. Internally, all teams had to be notified of trades five p.m. Eastern on Friday. We got one trade announcement on Saturday. We've gotten, I think two so far this morning, Monday morning. It should just be a list, right? The league Mm -hmm. should just release a list at this point or something, right? So that Uh, we can cover this and people can talk about it. (laughs) I I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think the league's role in this needs to be some sort of enforcement and, and yes, the clubs can control their own message. I mean, look, I think, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people listening to this from a club or league level will be further annoyed with me and, and they have my phone number. I, I mean, there is a media element to this. Certainly, you know, here we are 72 hours later, almost recording this podcast that we release every Tuesday and we can't even speak to a full picture of what happened necessarily, but we need to record this. Um, you know, I, I think, Unfortunately, the view of many is in on the other side of this is that's not our problem, um, which right. is a problem in itself. But I did before we came on just a quick one hour Twitter poll just to get a fan perspective. And in an hour, we had almost 700 replies and some of them thoughtful of how people felt about this delay. And I would say there is a business reason that this is also ridiculous in that you've announced a, a timeline of things to happen, right? 
and this is consistent with other things that we've seen. We announced, uh, the league announced the timeline that the spirit had to reply to uh, demands from the league for change. And they had 14 days and that was two months ago. And right. um, that's just been a, well, <laughs> they're still suspended. Uh, we're waiting for them to do something, which the do something is Steve Baldwin, the cell, but you know, there are these kind of arbitrary deadlines. So we announced, they announced a, a deadline for 1 PM for the trade deadline, then 5 PM Eastern, all teams know about all trades. That's the one. So the argument against, Hey, we haven't announced this yet is of course, the players need to know. And that's of why course. last right. year, yeah. right. ridiculously, the Chicago Red Stars waited four days to tell us they made a massive um, and even like game-changing trade because we didn't even know that the asset they traded for was an asset. Right. And they said, well, we had to get in touch with players. Yuki Nagasato is in Japan. I mean, okay, four days later. But the point at which every team knows about every trade four hours after the trade deadline Friday those players know because you're right. not telling your rivals and not telling that player. Right. So that is the point at which there needs to be an announcement. And a lot of the fan feedback that I've seen is a disappointment in one, the transparency of it, which right. I think is, is the theme of the year uh, on much more serious topics granted, but this is just sort of par for the course. Right. And right. two, the, the buzz, like, right. these are the things where, I mean, like I've gone around for years pitching ideas to, to different outlets of, um, you know, TV outlets or the league itself at one point, even of like, you need these media opportunities where you have a trade deadline, like in any other part of the world, in any league, a transfer deadline, this is an all day TV event. Mm -hmm. And the league comes out and says, we have a trade deadline. We have major deals that have happened by the way, that have been somewhat reported we've done what we can and, and i think you know do we take some of this yes do we need to i mean i don't know if i need to work harder i guess i do but i, I don't feel that way when i'm like doing you know, it you, right when you're you sending know, you like and 16 others texts are, out right yeah yeah doing that on a sunday like right um so you know yes we play a role in that but the idea that there is a 1 p.m trade deadline it comes and goes you know some stuff got announced the day before that was big but it comes and goes with a whimper and days later, oh, by the way, here's a major trade. Like there are fans that are very engaged. It's a very engaged league. It's mm -hmm. a very smart fan base. And they are literally on the social media platforms that the league wants to engage these clubs. I should really specify these clubs because that's who need to announce these things, want right. to engage. And they're telling you largely from what I'm seeing, this is ridiculous. Right. And we feel some version of lack of transparency, insulted right. by it, just say it. And they are disappointed and they are saying, you've lost all the buzz. That's the thing. Like right. this should be an event and it should be, you know, once the stuff that needs to be taken care of, which is players know first, they're not finding out from a tweet. Right. Okay. You know, but now a news cycle has passed. And I think that's a problem that the league has had for so long. Right. And I don't know that it's been recognized by the way that this continues. Yeah. I mean, I think where I'm at with it is this is an indicator that clubs genuinely believe that transparency is something that is bad for them. Um, and I think that when you have something like that, I've said this, I think a million times, if even just the normal soccer operations are treated like state secrets, how is that conducive for other more serious things to come to light? Um, mm -hmm. and so if we can't agree with, with clubs that talking about their soccer team a lot is good 
I don't know how we start to agree on the other big stuff. Um, <laughs> so that's where I, that's, you know, and, and I think that there are some people who say, you know, it, it's not, you know, it's not that big a deal. It comes out when it comes out. And I think that that to a certain extent is true, right? Like, you know, this is not the end of the world, but it, it does come back to that basic disagreement between the fan base and clubs or between people who cover the league and clubs, which is that what they are doing, people want to know about, mm-hmm. and it's not better for them not to tell people after a trade has been done. Sure. We're not trying to get the scoop on something that has just started happening, but when people have signed the papers, let people know what's going on Um, because it starts to feel a little bit deceptive over, over time. Right. It is. So I just think that that's, that's my thought on it. Um, Yeah, it is. I I would love for anybody listening in a a position and, and again, I mean, I don't mean this aggressively, but they have my phone number and I would love to hear a real reason why 72 hours later, we have trades unannounced that, um, the, the only excuse I've heard from anybody is, is telling the players first. And that happened 60 some hours ago. Right. Right. And then understandably, you think if players know that they've been traded and they can't tell anybody that doesn't seem really good for their mental health either. So I think at some point it becomes a, a bigger issue on the other end. Um, yeah. So any other, any other final thoughts, Jeff, other than just, you know, kind of keep it coming. Right. I think that for me, I, this is not going to be my feelings on off season transfers are, are not going to be complete until there's a CBA, because at this point, things are still very much in favor of the clubs and it makes it very hard to know who is happy with what and why, but this does feel a little bit like a step forward, right? That we're circumventing the expansion draft a little bit, that some moves are being predicated on player wishes, that fan bases are open to that and understanding of that. I do think that in the court of public opinion, these teams have lost some of the power, right? I don't think they get to control the narrative so much anymore. Um, but it still just seems like a lot of uncertainty because I don't know team for team what the vision is necessarily for a number of these clubs as well. Um, so I don't know. Are you feeling positive, neutral, negative? What do you think, Jeff? <laughs> uh, broad topic. I guess I'll go with uh, stuck in neutral at yeah, the moment. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think ultimately to your point on the CBA, the, the way around this completely, the only way to actually get past an expansion draft is to have a version of free agency and then you can arm an expansion team with, extra cash, whatever that looks like. And they have free agents, you know, to choose from, but in the current setup, this is about honestly, the best that can be done is that the expansion draft has to exist as a form of leverage. Right. Exactly. Um, cool. I mean, we were, we were going to talk a little bit of us at the end here, but we've, we've gone, we've gone long. Um, yeah, I, I mean, w- this is maybe a good seg because in the second half, we're going to be talking some international stuff, but there was the end of the international window. Um, uh, last week or yes, last week. Um, so maybe this is good uh, talking about future things, right? Um, maybe this is a good, here's, here's another, here's a way to seg this CBAs. We saw a youth movement a little bit in this, this roster that we saw for the U S in Australia. One of the things about this talk with allocated players, non-allocated players, CBA for NWSL, CBA for U.S. Women's National Team is we don't know what's going to happen with any of that right now. Jeff, do you think talking about maybe increased parity of competition, maybe even on a U.S. level, 
do you think maybe what happens next is these intricate systems of allocation maybe start to go away? Clubs have to pay players. We see more open movement and we maybe even see more open movement on and off of the U S national team as well. Yeah. I think we've been seeing that, you know, yeah. the, the allocation um, let me, let me rephrase. Cause I yeah. hate the, the leagues. Um, oh, the federation confusing. Versus, yeah. yeah. Federation, right, yeah. the federation players, you know, that's been a movement away from that for roughly a year now. And yeah. that was, you know, started with Lindsay Horan and Crystal Dunn. And um, we've seen some other since have moved away from that. And I think depending on who you talk to, at least earlier this year, it was, this will be gone by 22. And -hmm. some others thought it might need some phasing out, whatever that looks like it's going away. So, you know, in that sense, I think that's good for, well, maybe I need to rethink because previously I was saying, I think that's good for the fact that clubs can have some more control over players, but the way that this year is gone, that maybe that's, Right. Not the right way to phrase that, but well, players the, can have more control over themselves. Right. I would hope. There you you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the problem before was that the, there was no actual relationship between player and club. And thus right. you had a U.S. player say, I'm just going to go play for Leon for six months and club can't do anything about it. They don't get compensated as if it were a loan. You know, there were a lot of problems there. So right. I think there's just a lot that gets solved for simplicity of, of having direct contracts with teams. So, you know, I think that's been happening, whether it, you know, is fully in place come January is, is probably tough because this is the timeline when they have to rename Federation players actually right, right as we're, we're speaking mm-hmm. here. I need to right. follow up on that, I guess. But, um, you know, the so I, I think it's going to be interesting. I don't know. There's so much happening in certainly at the league level that, you know, the idea is really nice of having like a combined CBA and all of that. But it feels like some of these things are even though some of these things were also the case last time the new CBA came around, I think some of them are, Hey, we got to push that till the next CBA. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I think that what we're seeing, if I'm purely basing this off of sort of energy and and vibes and, and subtext of what we've heard, but it sounds like what's happening right now is very complicated and difficult. Um, and the fact that the NWSL is negotiating a CBA at the same time as the U S women's national team is further complicating it. Um, which, and they're also realizing that there are some very basic protections (laughs) that they need to establish and that actually they might have disagreements with ownership on that maybe they thought they were aligned with ownership before actually getting into those negotiations. Um, the, yeah, I, I'm fascinated to see what happens next. I hope, like I said, like I'm a little bit encouraged by some of the circumventing of the established way of doing things right now, but I hope to see more of that in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that, that's about it, right? So (laughs) there are going to be more NWSL trades coming through. We will have the expansion draft next week. Um, and then the college draft right after that, we'll, we'll see kind of what, what goes on there. Expansion draft could end up being quite short. We might have most of this stuff traded out by the time this even occurs. Um, and then we'll have part of the picture again, but I just don't think we're going to know exactly what's going on until, until 2022. So um, is there a particular thing? This will be my last question for you, Jeff. Is there a particular thing you would like to see in the second half of this? So we get past the expansion draft, we get past the college draft. Um, what would make you feel more secure going into the 2022 season? Is it, is it just a CBA? Is it, maybe some international signings that, that feel com- competitive globally. 
what kind of thing are you looking for, Jeff, to to show some stability in the NWSL going into mm. next year? Yeah. Well, I was going to say too, you know, quickly to your your segue of uh, I do think we'll see some new players, mm-hmm. you know, regularly on the U.S. team, and, and I'll, I'll tease us, you know, EqualizerSoccer.com for a long chat with Vlako Anonofsky about what mm. that looks like because yeah. um, that 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 was there's some stuff at length there of, of what that's going to look like. Emily Fox is, is a name that we talked about, sure. you know, on, on those games. And I think we'll see a lot of, um, as far as stability in the league, CBA, certainly, you know, I think that is not, these investigations are, you know, Marla Messing already used the phrase three, six, nine months, I think is how she phrased it. Right. Which, you know, is not, not exactly specific. Um, I've heard that they could take a year, to, to thoroughly be at the point of we're, we're done, we're going to release what we have. So these are not going to be things that are done soon. And I think fans are going to keep wanting those. So um, that gratification, if, if that's even the word for it, is not going to be there anytime soon mm-hmm. to, to know what happened when people want answers. So I think a CBA for all of these things coming before kickoff. And, and let's be honest. I mean, if, if there's not a CBA before kickoff, I have no reason to believe that this is going to be the case, but if we get to March or, or even preseason, maybe February and, and something is not figured out or at least agreed to in principle, then I think we get into a much more serious conversation about what the season looks like, because um, then you're talking about leverage of getting it done. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know, MLB has a work stoppage right now. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. um, so I think a CBA really, for everybody, players first and foremost, to, to be heading into preseason February or whenever that is, that's what's needed. Yeah, agreed. Um, right. We're at a little bit of a truce right now, I think, um, as we have been, where players are letting the league operate as usual while these things get figured out. Um, yeah, we could get into some real crunch time stuff before before preseason or before the regular season is supposed to start if the league drags their feet. So something for people to look forward to, I guess. Um, (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me. Uh, We'll be talking Canada, actually. We're going to be talking Canada internationals and they have a a few kind of flashy transfers themselves. So uh, stay tuned for part two. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, And everybody stay tuned for the next segment. Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. Real quick, going to do the thing I do every single week, and I'm going to ask you to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your streaming service. Give us five stars. Give us a rating and a review. It helps people find us moving into this uh, wacky off season and, and into the next year. Uh, we're doing something a little bit different this week. We're going to talk Canada. Uh, I am joined by Equalizer contributor and Canada expert Harjeet Johal. How's it going, Harjeet? It's going great, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. It's a lovely uh, Monday, and I'm excited to talk Canada with you. Beautiful. So big year, right, for for women's soccer in Canada. Obviously, Olympic gold medal, which is the the headline, but some other really interesting things, right? We um, opened up a lot of conversations, right, about where the women's game is in Canada, uh, how the college system works for Canadian players, whether Canada needs to have their own professional league, whether players should just, you know, go through college, maybe go to Europe, what those development stages are. Um, so maybe my first question for you, Harjeet, is give me an idea of the landscape, maybe at the end of this monumental year for women's soccer in Canada. 
Yeah, it's been a tremendous year for Canada. I don't think even us Canadians thought that they were going to win uh, gold at the Olympics, but they did. And the momentum from from when they won to getting back here to Canada to playing those celebration tour matches in Ottawa and Montreal, it was just amazing. The crowd, the fans, all the support the country has given them and really gotten behind this team. It's been amazing. Something, you know, we saw kind of in, in 2012 at the London Olympics, but we haven't seen it consistent consistently we saw it at the world cup when they hosted but it's it's the best time for canada women's soccer team you know they won gold you know they're one of the best teams in the world right now ranked sixth so they're they're a fantastic team and we're finally seeing you know what they can do when they have a strong defense christine sinclair and a great coach and bev pressman so from that standpoint they're doing really well and we're seeing more and more Canadians going over and playing in Europe so it's not just you know a handful of players it's it's some of Canada's best players that are that are taking that option to go play overseas so it's a really exciting time for the team and the players and the coaches and everyone's just really supportive and really happy to see how well they're doing yeah let's talk about that a little bit because it seems like Canada's approach at this moment is is quite different than what we have in the U.S. right where in the U.S., U.S. soccer kind of uh, manifested and underwrote this domestic league with the idea that a domestic league is the best way to develop talent for the U.S. team um, going through the college system, go into an NWSL draft, join NWSL teams. The focus has been very in in the country, right? Very domestic. Canada, it seems like, has found success with some, you know, some participation in NWSL, right? There are a number of allocated players um, in the U.S., but also kind of outsourcing to some of these European clubs, right? I mean, one of the the major transfer that we just saw today was uh, Grosso is she's leaving Texas, right? She's leaving University of Texas and going over to play for Juventus. Um, So from your perspective, we'll get into the conversation about a domestic league in Canada in a second, but does that seem like the pipeline that you're seeing now is maybe if if the players want to go to college, they can maybe leave college early to go go abroad. Does that seems to be what what players are favoring at this moment, right? Yeah, it certainly seems to be something we're seeing more and more of. You know, I've covered the team now almost for a decade, and it was almost unheard of that you would see a player, you know, go over and play in England or France, maybe a few in Sweden. But it was a handful, just a couple of players. It wasn't something you would consistently think of. And I think now we're seeing more options for players out of college, not necessarily the NWSL. And they're not just playing, you know, sporadically in countries across Europe. They're playing at some of the top clubs in the world, PSG, Lyon, Manchester City. So they're playing, you know, at the big clubs on the big stage and they're great at getting a lot of minutes. They're integral parts of those teams. They're big players for their club and their country and they're making a difference. They're having a big impact Chelsea as well. And so it's a huge step for Canada. I think maybe previously years we've been, it's been hesitant to see players go mm-hmm. and play over in Europe. I know with uh, us soccer, you know, there was maybe a preference a few years ago even to have players playing domestically in the MWSL. 
Mm-hmm. I think in regards to Canada, we saw we've always seen players allocated in the NWSL. I just think now there's more options and players are kind of thinking big and, hey, if I can go play in Europe and get a lot of minutes and live in a great city and play in big matches, why wouldn't I do that? And so it's great to see players like Julia Grosso going to uh, Juventus today. And so we'll see how she does. But it's a great door that's been opened for players. And, you know, if you have that opportunity, why would you not go and play in Europe? Yeah, it feels like a relevant conversation you know, a a little over a week before the NWSL college draft as well in that, um, you know, it seemed like to me, certainly it was very significant when Jesse Fleming decided to forego the draft and, and sign with Chelsea rather than join an NWSL club. Um, I even think of also like Deanne Rose leaving North Carolina. She went and tried out. She, I think spent like a week or two in North Carolina before making the jump over to Europe. Do you think that there is a feeling, and this is some conjecture, but I think it's worth talking about. Is there a feeling perhaps for Canadian players, like they need to take a little bit more control over their own careers rather than trust NWSL clubs with that? Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from, from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. I also think it's kind of, we'll get into this in a little bit, but we need a league in Canada. Right. If there's more options available for the players in, you know, Canada and in North America, the U.S., that'd be great. And they wouldn't have to go play over in Europe. You know, a lot of them would want to stay close to home, I imagine. So that's certainly a, a big aspect as well, but it gives them a lot more options and availability play across the pond. So I think we're seeing that and that's great. And there's there's not a lot of clubs in the NWSL that are maybe close to Canada. You know, you have the two in the Pacific Northwest, Chicago as well. And so I think you look at some of these places, oh, why why wouldn't I want to go live in Paris or Lyon? So I think those are factors as well. So it's great for Canada. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? If if you're thinking about being far from home, uh, what the difference between Paris and Orlando, right? If maybe if you're someone from like the Vancouver area is negligible. So why not Paris, right? Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Uh, I do think, and this is general, I think also for American players as well. I think sometimes people do underestimate the lure of home. I think that part of the reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we haven't seen um, a ton of, of top U.S. players go to Europe is I think many of them like playing at home. They like living in their home country. Um, Canadian players don't have that option, right? So with the understanding that creating a, a domestic league is a huge undertaking and Canada, like the U.S., is a very large country, there are certain logistical elements there as well. Do you think, Harjeet, maybe this is something, I, I know that you've asked uh, NWSL commissioners past about this, expansion maybe NWSL expansion into Canada or do you think maybe first Canada needs to build even if it's just like a semi-pro second tier development stage sort of a league um what what's the dream for you there is it is it something that's purely Canadian or is it Canada sort of like MLS becoming part of a system with the United States I mean, there's lots of moving parts to this question and lots of different factors that play. A league would be fantastic to have teams uh, from coast to coast. Uh, We're the second biggest country in the world in terms of land size. So that's maybe logistically not possible. Mm -hmm. 
But I think maybe more doable or something we could see in the foreseeable future is an NWSL team. Like you mentioned, I've been asking the commissioners of the NWSL, and I will continue to do that. We need a team in Canada, an yeah. option for players to be able to play in their home country for a team. I know it, it's something that, you know, they've talked about roster limits and how many Canadians would be on this team and there needs to be a stadium and all that. So those are all factors, but, I, you know, it's going to be 2022 in a month. And so I figure, you know, we need a team now. Well, what are we waiting for? Christine Sinclair has mentioned it numerous times. She mm-hmm. thinks, you know, if we don't get a team, you know, after you know winning uh, a gold medal, at the Olympic, like when is the time? What are we waiting for? What's what? What are people doing? So, there needs to be businesses coming on board. Canada soccer needs to come on board, and you know people need to be on the same page. And I don't think that's happening. I think there's a lot of chatter. You know, there needs to be funding, stadium, place to play, travel, and so there's a lot of factors at play. And we'll see what happens. I remember com- covering the the Whitecaps women in their last year in 2012. They played at about different pitches across Vancouver. They never had one specific home. And so the the visiting teams from the U.S. would fly up to Seattle and then drive across the border into Vancouver. And so you can't do that. You know, that's just some of the kind of hurdles they had in 2012. You need to have all these factors that play sword. And so I know fans are clamoring for a team and maybe they're not familiar with all the hurdles and so yeah there's a lot at play in the NWSL I get expanding to to California the west coast but hey get a team in Vancouver Toronto Montreal somewhere to get Canada on board that's what we need right it seems like there just needs to be some encouragement there right like I know talk about chatter right there's been some chatter within Toronto being being interested perhaps Toronto FC maybe wanting to to dip a toe into the women's game um your point about the roster, I do think is really interesting though, because I think, and I speak of this in a very general way with the understanding, and I know you know this too, Harjita, sometimes you ask people in the NWSL about rules and they say, well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure exactly what that rule says, but, but I'll look into it. Right. And it seems to me like NWSL, which is a little bit of a rules obsessed league is had some trouble. I mean, there has been some reporting um, earlier, earlier this, this decade about, the idea of should a Canadian roster for a Canadian team be treated as domestic, right? Because Canadian players who don't have green cards are considered internationals in, in the NWSL right now. Um, Obviously a Canadian club team would say, yes, of course they're playing in their home country. It should be, they, you know, they should be treated like anybody else. The NWSL maybe had an issue with that, with the understanding that at the time they were led by us soccer. Um, And so it's those kinds of little things that, seem so silly, but they seem like a big deal to the people in charge. And it seems like one of the reasons why something like this isn't happening, but it seems to me, and and see if you agree with this, that it should be something that they should be able to get past, right. In the context of wanting to further that relationship with Canada, with the understanding that that team's improving. So why would you not want those players in your league? Right. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. I mean, Roster rules, we understand them. We know why they're in place, but you would be putting a team in Canada, another country. Think of all well, the opportunities and all the doors that would open. And so something like roster considerations and how many Canadian national team players would be allowed to play on a team, 
if it was in Canada, I mean, that should be sorted out long ago. That should be figured out by now. And so we're not seeing a lot of movement, if at any. And so it's really disappointing to see how well the team's done on the national level on the pitch and then not translate to success here in Canada. And that's why we're seeing players go over to Europe. Right. Right. They're losing talent. The NWSL is losing talent. Um, so let's talk a little bit about pause. Let's talk about some positive, some positive, uh, developments. Um, (laughs) I'm interested in your take of the, uh, slight Canadian takeover of the Portland thorns. Uh, we've got Karina LeBlanc as their general manager. Uh, they finally sort of, um, officially announced Rian Wilkinson. I think it was last week or two weeks ago. Um, part of this, you know, Wilkinson acknowledged that part of it was that she doesn't have an opportunity, right. To coach at a top club level in Canada, which I think again was maybe just stirring the pot a little bit, right. Getting the conversation going back again, which I think is useful. Um, from a Canadian perspective, I'm, I'm sure it's very exciting to see former players move into positions of influence like this. Um, but maybe again, do you just sort of wish that it could be happening in up in Canada as well? Yeah, you want to see something like that available in Canada. It'd be great if Rian and Karina had opportunities in their home country where they could be a coach and be running a team. But like they said, you know, and said there's no opportunities here, so you can't blame her for going and, you know, being the coach of Portland. It's a great job for her. It's a great hire. I think they're going to do really well in, in Portland. I think uh, maybe we'll see them open up a Tim Hortons down there and it can right. be the Canada <laughs> of the NWSL. So yeah. I think Rian's a perfect hire. I think she's going to be great. You know, she had put her name in for the, the head coaching job, and obviously that went to Bev, and so she went across the pond and, joined the Lionesses for a little spell there. And so she's got the experience and she just needs uh, an opportunity to become a head coach. And she has that now in Portland. So I think she's going into a great situation. It's a great team. It's got a lot of talent, a lot of players, and they've always been the class of the league mm-hmm. on the pitch. And so that's great for them. And Christine Sinclair's there, Karina's there. So yeah, they're the Canada of the league and maybe they'll be selling poutine down there at halftime. Yeah, I love that. Just lean in, right? Lean into the Canadian energy. Um, okay, so so maybe my final question here is, you know, for our listeners, they're familiar with the Canadians who are in the NWSL, and they're probably familiar with the the Canadians who were obviously on this gold medal team. Everybody knows Ashley Lawrence, right? Who is one of the top players in the world right now. Um, from from your vantage point, are there any names that the, your average us based fans should, should be watching out for whether coming up through the ranks of the Canadian national team or playing abroad or coming through college. Um, are, are there any players that you think to yourself, we're not talking about this player enough. I think Vanessa Gilles, I think she should be getting a ton of credit and she, She's been a rock back there on defense. It's an, a big reason why Canada has had eight clean sheets this year alone. And she, she pretty much came out of nowhere. She was playing over in France. Uh, not a, I believe she was at Paris FC. Mm. I'll have to check that. But yeah, she came out of nowhere. She was, she's took over kind of for Selena Zadorsky spot on the number one center back duo. And so we saw how well she played uh, against the U.S. in that She Believes Cup game. She blocks everything. They call her the magnet. And so she's a really underrated uh, defender. And I think she's a huge reason why Canada was able to play 
uh, lockdown, shutdown defense for this past year. And I think she doesn't get enough credit. And, you know, we hear about Kadisha Buchanan and Ashley Lawrence, and they're fantastic. They've been great. But I think Vanessa has been fantastic as well. And so it's great to see how much success she's having. And she came out of nowhere. And so, yeah, I think Vanessa Giles is definitely uh, a player to watch. And if you're an opposition uh, forward, you're going to have a tough time going up against her. And so, yeah, she's been great. Great. Very nice. Um, all right. So let's get specific about the the current current state of everything. So Canada wins the Olympic gold medal. They have the celebration games back home. They recently traveled to Mexico and played Mexico twice. And we're, this is maybe just ramping up. We've got World Cup qualifiers coming up in a couple of months, right? Um, getting ready. You know, everyone is sort of tinkering, looking at their rosters, looking at what they can improve upon for World Cup 2023. Canada, they lose the first game in Mexico and they tie the second game in Mexico. I know that they didn't have a lot of their top line players available, but that's the point, right? We're going, it's okay to lose right now. That's, that's the goal is to learn, um, from, from different performances. So do you think Harjeet Canada right now is looking at, okay, we've got this group that won gold in the Olympics and we're just going to try to ride that out, carry, see that through to 2023. Or do you think that there is this kind of looking at greater depth, looking at other options to strengthen going into a World Cup campaign. Yeah, it's definitely not okay to lose. We do not want to see Canada <laughs> losing. Okay. I got to correct you on that one. Um, fair enough, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, the, the Mexico games, you know, they weren't they weren't good enough. You know, they should be playing a lot better against Mexico. Obviously, they're a CONCACAF rival, mm-hmm. but Canada is a lot better than Mexico. They have more talent. They have uh, players playing in some of the top leagues in the world, in the team, so... It was really disappointing. You know, they played great defense as they usually do. I believe they've only allowed two goals from open play in the last seven games. That's fantastic. You should be winning, you know, every game when you do that. But if you score one goal in those two games, you know, it's not good enough. You're having to depend on a 1-0 or a 2-1 victory. This team still has problems scoring. I know it's a broken record and we've really banged on a lot about it, but it's the same issue. It's, it's still there. And, you know, Christine Sinclair, she's not going to be able to play forever. She's doing great, but she needs some help. And so you've got Jordan Heidema. She scored the goal. Michelle Prince, um, Deanne Rose. And so they've got talent. They can certainly create chances. It's it's finishing them. And that's the, the biggest question mark is where are the goals going to come from? To answer your question, I think, I don't think they're going to go with the same group mm-hmm. heading into 2023 at the World Cup. I think we're going to see some movement, a little bit of tinkering, maybe a few players maybe leaving the program and some younger players getting an opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. But the big question mark, and it's still unknown, is who's going to leave and, and when are they going to do that? And when right. is Bev going to maybe bring in some new players? And the, the question and kind of the problem with that right now is the celebration tour hasn't been finished yet. It's not been completed. You've got those two games they played on the East Coast, but, you know, Canada's frozen for about 10 months of the year. And so now, you know, they can't play for a while until I believe the April or June FIFA window. Obviously, we know they're going to uh, England to play in their tournament in February and 
you know, that'll be great for them. We'll see if they can rebound and get some results, score some goals. But, you know, the, those players that won the gold medal, you know, they're going to be on the celebration tour. They're going to be part of that team. But then you're going to have to implement and try and bring in new players. How are you going to do that with qualification, I believe, in July? So it's going to be a quick turnaround for whenever they do play the celebration tour and honor the players. You know, they still have to honor Christine Sinclair in her hometown for mm-hmm. breaking the all-time goal scoring record. So there's a there's a lot to do. And so we'll see how they pick up in the new year. It's certainly an exciting time, but there's still issues of you know scoring goals and kind of what transition they're gonna take going forward with players. I mean, same. I mean it's 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 interesting to hear the Canadian perspective because I'm like, yep, uh older players that maybe need to either retire or be moved out of the roster, like from a U.S. perspective, thinking like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So maybe, maybe some parallels, some parallels between the two countries at, at this moment. And you're right. It is a shorter schedule. They lost a year because of the delayed Olympics and it's, it's crunch time now. Right. And so everyone has to balance that. Um, well, thank you so much, Harjeet, for joining me. It's been, been too long. Definitely needed to cap off a very big year in Canadian soccer. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you on soon. I probably, hopefully around at least world cup qualifiers to, to talk about, what Canada's role there is. Um, thank you all for listening so much. Shout out to our producer, Jacqueline Purdy and blue wire podcast, our distributors. Uh, I have been your host, Claire Watkins. Thanks you guys for listening and we'll catch you next week.